My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Farzad Mithbahi. Farzad, uh, introduce the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you currently? Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Michael reached out, what was it, a month and a half ago now? And he asked me to be on the show. And I'm like, sure, what the hell? Why not? <laughs> and then, yeah, and then now we're here. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Excited to be here with everybody. So a little bit of my background. I've been doing uh, YouTube and content creation and X and stuff on uh, for about two years now. It was actually two years on the dot a couple of days ago, which is a pretty cool milestone. And that was born out of my background in the automotive world, specifically electric vehicles. I worked at Tesla for a little over four years from 2017 to 2021. I worked on the supply chain side. Before that, I was a director of uh, business intelligence and pricing at a billion dollar distribution company. They did pet food, which is one of those like hidden gems of the economy. One of the most recession proof businesses out there. Even when, you know, when folks are making a lot of money and they're losing their jobs, they're not going to stop feeding their pets. So go figure. The pet industry is super strong. But I learned a lot of my stuff back there with a ton of great leadership and, and mentorship from the entire Philips team. And then that allowed me to land at Tesla a few years uh, later. And I ha- I've been following companies like Tesla and the EV space for a really long time. So a lot of my content focuses around the EV space and EV makers specifically in the transition from EVs to or from gas cars to EVs. But I I generally just have a lot of different interests, AI being one of them. I follow that very closely as well. I'm not technically savvy from that space, but I'm very much in tune with the societal impacts that AI can bring. And that's super interesting to me. And yeah, and I'm I'm here just, you know, every day I wake up, I uh, have an awesome wife. I have an awesome life and I just, you know, get in front of a camera and talk. And that's what I do. And it sounds crazy, but it, I love it. So thank you for having me. I am curious, just given how long you've been on the Tesla and the EV side of things, how has that narrative evolved over time? Because, you know, I think everyone assumed we'd have self-driving autonomous cars and there'd be many more EVs than there are today. What changed or what's not changed in terms of the initial vision around EVs and, and Tesla's dominance? Yeah, that's a great question. So I started following the, that space. Around 2012 was when I started really perking up. And one of the main reasons why was I just found the the mission of, of Tesla very inspiring. It was something that was, that just really resonated with me closely. But once I really started going through the weeds, I realized that there is a, a true market potential for electric vehicles back in the day. And, and, the, and the big thing that was holding them back, so that the overarching narrative out there was that electric vehicles are unprofitable. They're just golf carts, you know, they're, they're ugly golf carts. They're not going to give you the performance of a gas car. And then what Tesla did specifically was that they completely changed that narrative into, hey, EVs are not just not golf carts. They're actually quite a bit better than gas cars in many different ways. And it's transformed from this story that was looked at as, hey, this is never going to happen. You know, this is impossible. This is, it's, you know, dead on arrival. If you go back to 2012 and you look at all the different headlines that were created around the EV story, you can see that there was a lot of skepticism and a lot of just outright dismissal of the technology. And then you fast forward 10, 11 years later, and the best-selling car in the world uh, is an electric vehicle. And this is the Tesla Model Y. It's going to do probably around 1.2 million units this year. And the company achieved that with little to no advertising or marketing, especially in, in, in a lot of the Western nations, the US specifically. They just started some efforts around marketing and commercials and stuff in the last few weeks. But up to that point, this thing just spread like wildfire through word of mouth. So now we've transitioned from this is not going to happen to 
well, this is not going to replace gas cars, right? Yeah, it's still a niche product. So, so that's what I'm really into now. That's what I track every day. That's what I try to uh, bring my audience up to speed with is, hey, you might be hearing something out there in the mainstream media. You know, Ford, GM, and all these companies have come out and they announced, hey, you know, we're delaying our investments in electric vehicles because they're not just profitable. But there's so many different other variables going on there that is not allowing them to be profitable. It's not that the people don't want them, is that they can't make them profitably or they can't make a product that's compelling enough to a large number of people. So, so yeah, so we've transitioned from this is not going to happen to this is not going to take over. And that, you know, if, if you ask that question 10 years ago, would we ever get to this point? I'm willing to bet a, a huge number of people would say, yeah, this is like where we are today is not a thing that will happen. And I think we've actually surpassed a lot of people's expectations. How, how much of that challenge around profitability for the other car uh, manufacturers is due to the supply chain uh, itself, right? I've got to assume that making sure that you get uh, enough lithium and having all the infrastructure in place when it comes to developing EVs is maybe a more daunting task. Yeah, it's actually, th- that's a great question. It's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily just a supply chain thing. So supply chain is definitely a component. I would say it's more around legacy automakers having invested hundreds of billions of dollars over the last few decades, perhaps even more, in their existing gas car manufacturing process. And the one bet that the legacy automakers had was like, okay, so if electric vehicles do become the thing, we should just be able to you know, switch over our gas car manufacturing lines over to the EV side and make cars that people like and still be profitable. But all the data points from legacy automakers shows that this is not the case. And this is something that was called out by many people that followed the EV story very closely from a long time ago. And, and one of the primary reasons why is because gas car factories are not optimized to build EVs. Uh, a gas car has significantly more parts than an electric vehicle. It has a gas engine. It has an alternator. It has a radiator. It has a catalytic converter. It has a transmission. It has a bunch of harness and wiring and piping and valves, so on and so forth, right? Things that don't really are not needed in an electric vehicle. And when you remove those variables, you're left with a, with significantly more room to play with. And that room to play with in an electric vehicle allows you to build the car much more efficiently to offset some of those higher costs that pertain to the battery where we are today. And that's why legacy automakers are not able to make any money on these things. They're using a gas car uh, manufacturing process to try and build an EV. But when they do that, they're not able to take out the costs that are needed to offset the battery costs. And I think we see this in the numbers. So if you look at Ford's earnings report, and, and I commend Ford for doing this. So Ford started doing this earlier this year with their giving us visibility in, in their quarterly earnings reports into how much money or they're making or losing as it pertains to electric vehicles. And they're the only legacy automaker that's doing that. And they're losing about 75% margin on their electric vehicle business and about, I think, around 36,000 units sold for the last quarter. So it's, that's about a loss of $1 billion per quarter building EVs. Where Tesla, on the other hand, they're making significantly more EVs, and that's what's helping them drive a lot of those economies of scale to get the cost down. But they were profitable back in 2012, or 2013 rather, while only shipping 30,000 units per year. And that's why. With battery costs from 10 years ago, which are significantly higher than they are now. So like that data point alone tells you that if you approach the electric vehicle from the ground up and you don't rely on the existing 
sort of process of building a gas car and try to transform it to an electric vehicle, if you go from the ground up, you have a path to profitability. But if you go the, the route of the legacy automaker, it's, it becomes a very difficult task to become profitable. And right so far, we're seeing that it's impossible. And then you layer on variables like corporate structure, culture, potentially having to deal with a union like GM, Ford, and Solantis just have to do, which is going to increase their overall costs, which is going to make them even further, even more uncompetitive versus companies like Tesla that are not unionized, right? You layer in all these multiple layers of complexity that legacy automakers have sort of absorbed for the last hundred years. And now you have a recipe that makes it very difficult for a legacy automaker to be able to transition to electric vehicles. Is it easier for the legacy automakers to more focus on the hybrid side of things rather than go all in? So that's for sure. And we, we already see that rhetoric from legacy automakers. So as they're moving away from electric vehicles, they're starting to be, become much more, much more, I guess, openly vocal about this is why hybrids are good for us. And the reason why it's going to be good for them, and if you think about what I just sort of mentioned about gas cars, the manufacturing process and the electric vehicle manufacturing process, a hybrid is still a gas car, right? It still has the engine. It still has the transmission. It still has all that other stuff. But then you also have this additional component on top of the gas car process, which is a battery or some sort of hybrid system that uh, helps power the car as well. But the gas car companies are then able to make a profitable car, it being hybrid, because they're leveraging all their existing manufacturing processes to make that hybrid versus an electric vehicle, which requires brand new processes to make an electric vehicle that's actually something people want to buy. So... And, and I expect legacy automakers to push this very hard because one of the big variables in the United States to keep in mind when it comes to this hybrid thing is that the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year, the component they have for the federal EV tax credit, which uh, some automakers qualify for, one of the components is like, hey, you have to have your material sourced from a specific country. A certain percentage of them have to be in, you know, in the US or neighboring countries or in partnering countries. So they have a lot of these different qualification. But one of the other ones they have is that, hey, as long as the battery that least seven kilowatt hours, which is one tenth of the size of your best selling Model Y, as an example, or Tesla Model Y, as long as you have a battery that's one tenth the size of that, and the other variables uh, you're able to comply with as far as where they come from, you qualify for the $7,500 EV tax credit. So what's going to happen now is you're going to have a lot of these legacy automakers, most likely, this is my prediction, is you're going to have a lot of legacy automakers, instead of trying to push an EV that they know they can't make money on, they're going to push a hybrid that they know they can get make money on with a big enough battery that might give the car like, I don't know, 20 to 30 miles of range, maybe 40 in the best case. And they'll say, hey, look at this thing. This thing is amazing. <laughs> it, it's going to be able to fit your needs. And it, it, and it will for a lot of people, to be honest, it will. But I can also talk about why long-term that's not the right solution. but. They're going to push that and they're going to be able to take advantage of the $7,500 tax credit as well. So it's going to be like this, you know, they're going to claim it's going to be some sort of transitionary period. It's, you know, as they're trying to almost force hybrids onto people <laughs> and then and then we'll see if they, that gives them enough time to revamp their businesses to get into electric vehicles full bore. But what I expect to happen is that hybrid vehicles, I think... Even though they're great, I mean, they really do have a, a use case. And I know there's a lot of people out there that drive hybrids and they're phenomenal cars and they seem to be quite reliable in a lot of, in a lot of places. But from an efficiency perspective and, and the cost of manufacturing, 
a hybrid has two drivetrains. You have a gas drivetrain and you have a battery drivetrain. Whereas with an electric vehicle, you only have one drivetrain, and that's the electric drivetrain. And that electric drivetrain has significantly less moving parts than a hybrid drivetrain. So you get two, you get almost three different benefits. The first one is, obviously, long-term, you're going to have a lot better maintenance on an electric vehicles because you, you have a lot less moving parts. And also over the long-term, as a battery uh, supply chain ramps up, you have to remember, we saw the very beginning of this transition. The gas car has had 100 years to build up its, its supply chain and manufacturing processes and all this innovation stuff that they have to build into the process. So they have 100 years of costs taken out, whereas the electric vehicle only has like 10 years of costs taken out. So now you have, we're going to have lower costs in the long term. You're going to have less maintenance in the long term. You're going to have a lighter car in the long term, which is going to help with fuel efficiency. And you're also going to have better safety because you don't have as many things taking up space in the crumple zones and in areas of the car where you can uh, sort of leverage, again, I think crumple zones so you can stay safe within the cabin. So yeah, th- that was a long explanation, <laughs> but I think you're right. I think legacy automakers will drive hybrid vehicles because it's in the best interest for them to do that because that's the only thing they're going to be able to make profitably as the gas car sort of interest winds down over time. And they try to leverage their existing manufacturing processes to build something profitably versus being stuck with an electric vehicle that they can't make profitably. Is there any anything to support the idea that consumers are more willing to buy a hybrid than a pure EV just largely because of the, the kind of range anxiety issues that I think some people still have? Oh, yeah, of course. For sure. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. That's definitely one of the biggest reasons people shy away from electric vehicles. It's because they feel that it doesn't meet their needs. It doesn't meet their ability to you know, say, take the random road trip from home to a different state or to run their daily errands or, you know, that one time they have to do a certain thing to go a certain place that the electric vehicle is going to leave them stranded. A lot of that, a lot of that is there. But I think what's perhaps lacking, and this is maybe an education thing, is that for a gigantic majority of use cases, especially for the American public, and we're not even talking about Europe. I mean, Europe, electric vehicles are a no-brainer. You can see how quickly they're being adopted over there. Is that electric vehicles are more than adequate enough as long as they have enough battery and as long as they have a charging network to support it. And there's really only one car company that has had both in tandem, and that's Tesla. So they've had the range and they've had the charging network, which they're now opening up to every automaker starting next year. And... So it's, I think it's more of an education and an awareness thing, to be completely honest. I, if I use myself as an example, and again, I'm one use case, and I encourage everybody to sort of do their own research, but I've been driving exclusively EVs since 2016. So I haven't, my wife and I haven't owned a gas car since 2016. And we average about 15 to 20,000 miles a year. And every single year, we take a road trip from Texas to Pennsylvania in our Tesla. 
And we've gone last three years and we've been able to complete the trip with zero issues in three years. The only variable that changes when we have an electric vehicle, in this case, the Tesla, because we have a, a supercharger network, is that we add probably like three or four hours of charging time for the entire trip. This is a sort of 24 hours, maybe more, maybe like five hours. It's 24 hours of driving from Pennsylvania to Texas or Texas to Pennsylvania if you were to no stops. But with the charging stops, you add another five hours. So it's like 29 hours uh, on the road. But for us, we have two dogs. Our bladders are not the biggest bladders in the world. (laughs) So what this basically means is that every two and a half hours to three hours, we make a stop at a charger. We use the restroom, we get a drink, we walk the dogs, and then we hop back in the car and the car's ready to go already, right? So we don't even have to really wait for the car. And that experience, I think it's hard to convey and it's hard for it's hard for somebody to feel convinced that an electric vehicle is good enough until they experience that. And I think that's what's what needs to happen in the next few years for their for the general public to be more warmed up to EVs. But as the charging network continues to grow, as car companies continue to make more and more vehicles that have really good range, I think this process will naturally take care of itself because on the flip side, the huge benefit you get is that the running costs of an electric vehicle are way lower, are way lower per mile than a gas car. And if I use again my, myself as an example, we had a, and back in 2016, we bought a 2017 Tesla Model S, 75D. This was like a $75,000 car at the time. But the amount of, and of course, upfront cost is huge, right? You have to keep that in mind. It's a $75,000 car. That's a super expensive car. But on a per mile basis, because it's an electric vehicle and it didn't need any maintenance compared to the gas car, the uh, cost per mile of that $75,000 car was less than my, at the time, before I bought my Tesla, my 2006 Mazda 6, right? And so that's the equation that I think more people will get exposed to as we continue this transition, is that electric vehicles long-term, especially as the cost of entry comes down, they're much cheaper per mile than a gas car. And once they realize that the charging infrastructure is there for an electric vehicle to be used in a huge majority of use cases, right? There are still some areas where electric vehicles are not feasible, like you say long, long haul trucking, or you need to drive 500 miles in a day and you are, you have to get there as quick as possible. Yeah. Don't buy an EV for those use cases, but 90, 95% of America. And I think electric vehicles more than good enough. And then you also remove some of those small pockets around the country where maybe the charging infrastructure is not there, but that also means that it's not going to be very densely populated, right? So so that equation still works. So that's how I think about that. The other part of this, of course, is you need to have an upgraded grid in general, right? There's more than just the infrastructure of the charging stations, right? I think there's a growing realization that if you're going to have a world full of EVs, you're going to need to have much more ability from a capacity perspective on the electricity end. At, at what point does that become a stopping point for adoption and growth? Obviously, you're not there yet, right? But presumably, the two have to kind of run in parallel. That's, yeah, that's a fantastic point. The, the electricity shortage, I guess we'll call it, that, that's a concern that will arise if the grid operators and the energy companies choose not to expand their businesses as electric vehicles become more and more prevalent, right? So in other ways, the grid, and, I, and I've 
I have a friend, his name is Matt Smith. He used to work for an energy company and he's given me a lot of insight into how these corporations work or, or I don't even know what to call them. They're almost like government control entities. I don't even know how to describe them. But innovation, speed, expansion, these companies work very slowly. And you know, let, let's also make sure we, we say that it's a miracle that we have. We even have a grid. A lot of countries around the world don't even have a reliable grid. A lot of countries, you know, lose electricity every freaking day. In the United States, we happen to have one of the best grids in the world, but it was still very archaic and very old. So there's not going to be a forcing function to change unless there's some form of demand that's going to drive a lot of these operators to say, okay, there's going to be more EVs on the road. This means more demand for our business, which means more profit for our company. Okay, cool. We should probably do something. And I think that's going to be the forcing function for the grid to be upgraded. It might be an issue, let's say, if the path of electric vehicle adoption continues into, let's say, 2026 or 2027, sort of it continues accelerating the way people think it's going to accelerate. Then, and, you know, then you layer on top of that whole AI thing, right? Because AI servers and AI brains are very, very hungry for electricity as well, but pale in comparison to electric vehicle side. I think if we don't do anything, 2026, 2027, will may run into an issue. But again, the, the grid doesn't change unless there is a forcing function for it to change. It's, and that's generally how capitalism works. So yeah, it could be an issue if folks just rest in their, in their laurels, which I've known to do. But that's how you drive pro- progress is you have to force stuff sometimes. Just to brief at the room for the remaining 15, 20 minutes, but please make sure you follow Farzad here on X. And also, by the way, check out his YouTube channel, 78,000 subscribers. Farziness at Farziness there on YouTube. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, make sure you follow me. I see a few people want to ask questions. Just follow me. I'll DM you. We'll coordinate and I'll bring you up when I can. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. Okay, let's pivot a little bit to the post that I shared at the top, which is Microsoft, Google X, welcome to your new AI overlords, which sounds very friendly. I'm not going to lie. But I, I do want to get your thoughts on what's going on uh, with this drama around AI with Sam Ullman. Again, I haven't really been tracking this too much because candidly, I have more pressing things to deal with, but I get it. The media wants to just focus on this. And it's always a good story when you focus on somebody who's the face of something and then that face of something ends up going somewhere else. What's some of your, your thoughts or analysis on what's going on with open AI? It does seem like there is concern that this could be one of those cataclysmic situations for the valuation of the company, but also has bigger implications on the direction of AI. Yeah, I, I think sort of, you know, that there it's, it came completely out of left field. This whole thing started Friday evening when OpenAI's board decided to fire Sam Altman, which then Greg Brockman, if I remember his name correctly, who's a very close confidant of Sam, decided to step down. He was also on the board. So it just created this whole dynamic now where OpenAI, which was initially back in 2015, 2016, when it was founded, it was initially meant to be an open, an open source AI company that was focused on AI safety. Instead, in 2019, they created a for-profit arm and they started profit partnering with Microsoft which basically allowed some sort of for-profit motive for the company. The justification for OpenAI was, hey, we need to partner with somebody that's going to be able to give us the compute we need. It's very expensive, which kind of makes sense. But then in in exchange, Microsoft would get something out of it. Obviously, they're not going to do it out of the kindness of their heart. So they're a business after all. And it, it all culminated in Friday. 
Sam Altman being fired, that a ton of drama happened over the weekend where Sam went back to OpenAI's uh, headquarters to apparently come back. And then OpenAI decided not to bring him back. And then Microsoft basically poached Sam and Greg sometime last night. And then now 500 employees at OpenAI out of the 700 penned a letter that says, if Sam and Greg are not back in OpenAI, we were going to Microsoft. <laughs> so basically, all of this means that a organization that was initially tasked with being uh, a steward of AI safety is now a the AI research arm for Microsoft, a 100% for-profit company. Now, for the valuation of Microsoft, I think this probably helps them long-term because they have probably the leading AI tool out there in, in ChatGPT and whatever else comes with that, right? And this is really a masterclass, uh, a business masterclass by Microsoft and sort of capitalizing on the moment. I've, I saw a lot of people on X, for those that are Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones fans, chaos is a ladder and then Microsoft won. <laughs> they sure did. They sure won the ladder. But I think the other implications of this though is that I think it's very obvious where we're going with AI. This vision that uh, people like Elon Musk had back in 2015, 2016, of ensuring that AI was safe. We need to make, be very diligent and careful about its development because it could present a lot of issues long-term if we're not careful. I think all that stuff is thrown out the window. And now we're in a situation with this latest Microsoft thing that happened today where the race for AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, is 100% on. And now it's, it's an arms race. It's officially a, an arms race with Microsoft at the lead. and I have concerns around that dynamic because we're essentially saying, okay, so this technology that we all recognize can be very powerful for society, it can open a ton of doors for people, which we also know could present a lot of issues either through massive displacement of work or even worse, having a tool that becomes let's say, self, self-fulfilling self without the, without humans' best intentions in mind. <laughs> that presents a whole different uh, dynamic of, of concern. Now we're kind of going like, okay, just Microsoft for profit, let capitalism do its thing. Let's just develop this thing as quickly as we can and let's see what happens. So yeah, it's, uh, and now between Microsoft, Google and X, so Microsoft, OpenAI, doesn't seem it's going to exist anymore. So let's just call it Microsoft AI. Then you have Google with Bard. And then now you have X with XAI and Grok. Now you have three AI brains that are being developed sort of in parallel. And it looks like we're going to end up at a situation where we're going to have these giant corporations that are going to have a massive amount of resources when it comes to compute and let's say AI resources that people are going to be able to leverage for their own needs. And one somebody that I've known for a little while, his name is Dave Lee, and I really, I highly recommend people follow Dave Lee if they're really interested on the AI stuff. His tag is at Hey Dave Seven on X. I had a conversation with him a year or two ago, and one of his predictions was like, "Hey, I think we're going down the path of just having two or three, you know, AI brain providers where people are going to be able to pick and choose which one to use for their needs." And it's going to be closed and it's going to be all driven through uh, profit motives. And that's what it's going to be like. And I think that what happened over the weekend 
sort of presents itself as, yeah, this is probably what's going to happen, in which case Microsoft right now is the winner. And they're very much ahead of everybody else. So we'll see. It's fa- very fascinating. Oh, on that point about being very much ahead of everybody else, it, is this one of those business system dynamics where, you know, once you're number one, it's pretty much impossible to unseat. I mean, Google can't, Alphabet can't you know, overtake them or, or X can't. I mean, that's it's really going to be Microsoft. Yeah, I don't know, because the, the very unique thing about artificial intelligence is that you can use artificial intelligence to make your artificial intelligence better. <laughs> so so if your artificial intelligence is already ahead of everybody else's, then in theory, you're going to have a compounding exponential effect where your AI is going to get better, is going to get better faster because you have a better AI to make your AI better. Does that make sense? So it's like, wh- why wouldn't it be like that? Right. If AI is really this thing that that we're being told it is or that we think it is, if that's not the dynamic, then is it really AI? So and, and there's got to be a threshold that has to be passed. Right. There's got to be a threshold where that artificial intelligence is that helpful. And the ones that are ahead, it's theoretically will reach that uh, sooner unless you have a player like, let's say, X with, with Grok, their pace of development outpaces Microsoft to get to that point sooner, then theoretically X reaches that point of no return and then they accelerate into, I don't know, infinity or whatever the hell this thing's going to be in the future. So it could very well have that dynamic. Very well could be like how you described. Do you think that's going to present some um, some longer term risk for Microsoft going up against the, the, the government and the legislative uh, side of things? I mean, yeah, it's more than just sort of monopolies in that sense, right? Now you're talking about something that dramatically impacts people's thinking also. Yeah, 100%. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. The, the government, the U.S. government, at least, hosted an AI leadership panel. Who was it, like a couple of weeks ago now? They had, you know, Sam Altman, Elon Musk, uh, Satya, and a bunch of other folks as well. I think uh, folks from Google. And they're already building a framework, a uh, preliminary framework around how to handle artificial intelligence, how to ensure we're doing it safely. So I'm wondering if this acceleration here with Microsoft's basically rolling AI, open AI into Microsoft with this latest move, I'm wondering if maybe that will light a fire under the government to maybe start putting a lot of that stuff in motion to ensure this doesn't have an unintended outcome. But the, the problem with that sort of, you know, is like, hey, we want to be safe. But in my opinion, the government has also shown in the past that sometimes they don't do a great job <laughs> ensuring that these businesses can operate as quickly as they can, as safely as they can. Instead, it becomes a thing where you know you have red tape, bureaucracy, a lot of forced slowdown for the sake of slowdown creeps in, which stifles innovation. And we've had, I mean, this literally has happened every single time the government has gotten involved. So 
it's like one side, if you let this thing go too far, you know, with Microsoft just going as fast as they want, you're going to have potential doom and displacement of work and an AI overlord that maybe doesn't have our best interests in mind in the worst case scenario. And then in the other worst case scenario, you have government regulation that is way too stifling, way too red tapey. And then innovation gets stifled. This thing gets congregated around the few, not the many. And then you have very few people that are able to take advantage of the technology while everybody else is just kind of like sitting around like, okay, how come these people get to go freaking, they get to do whatever they want and we're here sort of eating on the scraps. But it's, so I don't know. And and the in-between doesn't seem like, I don't even know what the in-between looks like. (laughs) So it's like, it's very much a story of two extremes right now. And, you know, all of this is very new. And I think with time, the right, the real path will show itself, but it's, everything is so, it's like, it's a fog of war and it's very difficult to understand where this is going to go. And I mean, if you look at history, typically these types of moments are the moments that land sort of give way to some of the biggest breakthroughs in history with like the internet and freaking electricity and all these other things, like these crazy things that start happening around the world, especially around technology. That's very few people are understanding freaking the smartphones, <laughs> just chaos everywhere. Microsoft saying, you know, with Steve Ballmer and eh, nobody's going to buy that thing. And then five years later, the freaking iPhone's everywhere. But this is like that times a million. So I don't know. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. If that's what scares me the most. I have not played around with Grok on the X side, but I don't know if you have either. But is there anything really there or is this just sort of a little bit of a gimmick that Musk has put out there? No, I have access to it. It's, I mean, it's basically like a, like an earlier version of GPT. What, what I really enjoyed, the, the use case for me, which I really like with Grok, is that it's, it's up to date and it feeds off of X. So, you know, every time I, every morning I wake up and I go and I'm like, hey, give me the latest, give me the latest around this topic. And then it will, you know, give me a bunch of bullet points and I can drill into each bullet point and navigate through it. So from like a research perspective, for me to be able to sort of do my content of current events is super, super helpful. It's like a, it's like a Google on steroids with crack on top, you know, but it, it, it's not, let's say it's not as advanced as GPT-4. Like you can't put as many parameters in. It doesn't do some of the more complex stuff GPT does. But it's definitely useful. It's definitely useful. It's just not as comprehensive and as advanced as GPT. Do you get sense that the the algorithms or the knowledge that goes into creating these AI algos are they really unique and specific, or is it something that anybody can basically do with enough, you know, manpower and resources? Right. I mean, separate from the compute power, I'm, I'm thinking more about sort of the, the human intelligence aspect of what goes into the code. Yeah. So I'm not super savvy on the technical side, but from when I speak to folks that are. I mean, the bigger thing here is not the, uh, it's not the proprietary code. It's the data and the weights that are generated from that data. So it's like the AI player that has, that has access, not necessarily to the code, but to the compute and the data sets. They are the ones with the true advantage because the compute is what's going to allow you to process the data. And the data is what's going to allow you to generate the weights and the results for your AI to be maximally useful. And after a certain point, you can just have the AI write the code. (laughs) So like the human intelligence part of it, of creating an AI kind of goes away once you reach a a stage where the AI can just write its, its own code. And it becomes just a game of how many chips can I get so that my AI brain can process more data. It's like literally like a human brain. Like, you know, you do a great job with these podcasts and I bet you the more time we spend researching 
the guest, the topic, the industry, you have more information that you have at your disposal to create a good podcast. And the more people you talk to, you can draw things from other people for that current conversation that maybe other hosts couldn't bring forward because of your exposure to that data. And depending how big your brain is, right, and how smart you are, you can do that better or worse than other people. AI is literally the same exact thing. And it's much, it's down to the compute and the data. And that's by far the biggest advantage. And that's actually a, a good way of describing it. Um, I think that does make a lot of sense. Um, all right, and folks, given that, I have to unfortunately wrap this up a little bit earlier. Uh, and I have to do some things here at the top of the hour. Uh, everyone, please make sure you follow uh, Farzad here on X. Uh, Farzad, maybe just for the last couple minutes, um, talk about where people can find you and what excites you the most, at least in the next year or two. It doesn't seem to be the Cybertruck, given, given the last video that you put on YouTube, but I am curious just, you know, what kind of gets you going as far as things you're looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, Cybertruck, I'm definitely excited about for sure. I think Cybertruck's going to be sick, but honestly, I'm just, I'm trying to stay optimistic about this AI future. I think it has a ton of potential. I really do. I think it's going to, if we do it the right way, it's going to enable a lot of people to be able to do the things that they want to do and make a living out of it. I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges with society today is that we have too many people doing things because they have to, not because it really aligns with their natural skill set and what they actually want to do to feel fulfilled, right? You know, how many people do you talk to? They say, hey, I, I have to work at this gig or this job because it pays the bills, but I hate it, right? Excuse my French. But AI can solve that. AI can bring so much power to people that, it will enable them to really fulfill their true destiny if we do it correctly. And that's why I'm so fascinated by all the developments that are happening here. But so, so I, I still remain optimistic about that because that variable is still there. It can be so game changing. I think the transition to electric vehicles is super fun and cool. And I think it'll be a great thing for people long term because it enables you to leverage your, your grid that can be as diverse as you want to, you know, so with gas cars, we are beholden to oil. With electric cars, we can use anything. We can even use oil for, for goodness sake, to power the grid if we really wanted to. But it enables you to do whatever you want. So it, it, I think it maximizes freedom of choice. And it also gives a lot of national security because you don't rely on other countries that perhaps don't have the, your best interests in mind. So those things are, are, are exciting to me. And then as far as where people can find me, you can obviously find me right here at Farziness, or you can find me on YouTube, Farzad Misbahi, or at Farziness. And uh, yeah, I make videos Monday through Friday mostly, and I'm on here just shit posting all day. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Again, everybody, appreciate those that joined during this conversation. This will be a podcast in a couple of days, and hopefully I'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you for that. Really appreciate The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com.
Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.